Mr. Schilling. Jonah! Where's your shirt? Shirts are for mere mortals, my withered old friend. Sit beside the fire with me and take a look at what I've brought you. What is that? What you came for. A blanket for maximum snug ability? Oh, my decaying, decrepit comrade. Tis not a blanket, but a piping hot take. Uh, can we cool it with the old jokes? I'm here to relax, not to have my feelings hurt. If I wanted my feelings hurt, I'd go home to see my mom again. No! I refuse, you wrinkled old hag. We cannot. Because we're covering the greatest comedy about aging, the camp classic, Death Becomes Her. Now, drink this potion. I'm gonna stay young and beautiful forever, baby! Because this is Galaxy Brains, and today we're talking old Hollywood, eternal youth, and movie magic with host of the podcast, you must remember this, Karina Longworth. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, a podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's jealous rival, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, scream, screw the natural law with the galaxy brain. Today, we're covering the iconic comedy, Death Becomes Her, and taking a stroll through the silver screen with host of the You Must Remember This podcast and old Hollywood expert, Karina Longworth. But before we sip the sweet nectar of this film, we must pregame with the hearty stew that is Logic Brain. Wow, you're all over the place with this one, Dave. I'm staying true to the spirit of the film. Mm -hmm. the, the tone is completely uh, unclear. Is it? I, well, let's get into it, Jonah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Death becomes her as a special place in the filmography of legendary director Robert Zemeckis. It was his follow-up to the two Back to the Future sequels and is sort of a return to form. Zemeckis might have made his reputation on splashy special effects adventures like Back to the Future and Romancing the Stone, but he'd also directed the pitch-black satire Used Cars starring Kurt Russell. Used Cars was, you guessed it, about used car dealers being shitty to each other. It was a box office bomb when it came out in 1980, but has become something of a cult favorite that's pretty clearly influenced the men-behaving-badly satires from stars like Will Ferrell and Danny McBride. Sell Hard is one of those uh, examples. So it's only natural Zemeckis would go back to the genre the first chance he got after making Universal Pictures hundreds of millions of dollars on the Back to the Future trilogy. Zemeckis could do whatever he wanted at this point, and what he wanted to do was Death Becomes Her, an acidic comedy about two vain women, Helen and Madeline, who take a magic potion that keeps them from aging, but also prevents them from dying at all. Now a warning. Now a warning? They die for the romantic attention of Ernest, a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, with one big drinking problem and zero self-esteem. Death Becomes Her is a project that checked multiple boxes for Zemeckis. It had an incredible cast with Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, and Bruce Willis at the top of the marquee, 
and it combined the cynicism of used cars with the special effects wizardry of Back to the Future. But it's easy to forget that Back to the Future was also a pretty weird, dark movie when you think about it. Dude was trying not to fuck his mom. That's like kind of the big plot point of the movie. I'm trying to avoid fucking my mom. I, I don't know what it is, but when I kiss you, it's like I'm kissing my brother. Yes, it's, you see the wheels turning in poor Marty McFly's head uh, pretty often in that movie where he's like, well, she is hot. And will anybody remember this? Ooh, careful, Dave. <laughs> I mean, pornography uh, these days is nothing but the plot to Back to the Future. But, oh, God. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, if we're going to open this uh, can of worms here, this edible can of worms, maybe we should cool it a little bit and toss the logic in the trash and toss to a wee little segment we call Critical Brain. I think part of what I want to talk about is the entire filmography of Robert Zemeckis, who is one of the most influential directors of his era, certainly on, on my film going. But we don't talk about this movie so much in his filmography. Let's talk about what's a creepier movie. Death Becomes Her or Back to the Future, because as we pointed out in the previous segment, Back to the Future is kind of demented. It's good folly, I would say. In a weird way, it just doubles down on the old kind of thing. It's like, I can't have sex with my boss's wife, but like it amps it up to this, I can't have sex with my mom. It just, it gives that, that just that stress of just like, this is weird and out of my element. Uh, I love it. Michael J. Fox made kind of a, a mini career out of playing a guy who can't have sex with someone. It's a secret to my success. He's like rising through the corporate ranks and his boss is trying to seduce him. This whole movie. Very fun. Very fun. A super fun movie. A movie I watched a lot as a kid and I think uh, has influenced my love of older women, which we don't have to get into here. Um, possibly. But also very similar movies of Back to the Future and um, Secret of My Success. The idea, it's a lot of 80s movies where making money is the thing that is the most important thing. Yeah, the whole plot of Back to the Future really revolves around whether or not Marty is going to get the Jeep at the end of the film <laughs> so he can take Jennifer to go camping under the stars and snuggle and maybe finger her. What the fuck, Dave? You are horny today. I'm just saying that's what he's going to do when he takes her to the, to the campsite. You don't know that. You don't know that. Maybe she's going to finger him. I mean, someone's getting fingered at the campsite. I'm telling you that. Sure, sure. When they're under the stars, they got that beautiful Jeep and they're snuggled up and they got some soup and a little thermos. Yeah, they're going to put something in something. Doing nothing to save the clock tower, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they don't give a shit about the clock tower. But thank God Marty saved that piece of paper. Death Becomes Her, though, interestingly enough, is a movie about how making money and being a success ruins you completely. It's almost like the dark opposite of Back to the Future. Yes. And that it is not a movie about how capitalism and uh, the earning of money and the uh, amassing of goods is going to make you a better person. In, in reality, Helen and Madeline are miserable. And Ernest is certainly miserable. He's the most miserable character I've seen in a movie in a long time. I'm, I, I violated what law? In violation of every natural law that I know. You're sitting there. You're talking to me. But you're dead! Now, Bruce Willis is so good at just being, like, so dopey. That's what made him so good in 12 Monkeys, too, you know, is that he's just, like, he's not able to handle things. Yeah, I love Bruce Willis in 12 Monkeys because he just kind of whispers to the whole movie. May I call you James? James. The wearer calls me that. 
I promise I'll try. I'm going to try to save the future. Uh, Bruce Willis. Like, there's just like so much whispering in that movie. And he kind of brings that back in Sixth Sense. Those are the two great Bruce Willis whispering performances. <laughs> this is more of like a, a madcap sort of farcical, like lots of yelling and lots of fast talking. This comes at a really interesting time in Bruce Willis's career. He was at the height of his powers. You know, Die Hard had come out. It was four years after the first Die Hard. So he was as big a star as he'd ever be, ever. But he plays this character that's a complete doofus. And uh, around this time, he also is in the Bonfire of the Vanities movie based on the Tom Wolfe book. And he, again, plays kind of like a sad sack. And this is a point where he's kind of bumping against uh, some some bombs here because this was a, a success, but it wasn't a success maybe to the heights that he was expecting. And Hudson Hawk, one of his biggest bombs of all time, had come out the year before. That was like a, a movie that he had a lot of control in, right? Yes, he really wanted to make that a successful kind of like franchise and uh, not so much. <laughs> but this movie, he is really great in and it reminds you that Bruce Willis came from the comedy world, really. Like his first big performance, the thing that made everybody stand up and take notice of, of his work was Moonlighting, which was a light romantic comedy. This, on the other hand, nothing light about this movie and nothing romantic at all. This is a basically a rom-com that completely goes off the rails because Helen and Madeline are competing over Ernest. And uh, that's kind of a, a common trope in romantic comedies is some sort of conflict or competition between two people for a romantic interest. Well, Helen and Madeline don't really seem to even like Ernest that much. He is just the bobble, the representation, physical representation of their success over the other person. Yes. So this is kind of like a fun twist on the maudlin kind of typical romantic comedy. Yeah, that's like that's kind of what's fun about it. And that like you can kind of get that vibe, but then it's basically just set once, you know, they get to the point where they make up. It's a, it's very much it's like it's like it has nothing to do. He just happened to be there. That's all it was about. Yeah, he was just the he was the collateral damage. The conduit. Completely. Yeah. Ernest, are you doing something funny with Madeline? Define funny. This is a gross movie. There's a lot of like physical effects, makeup effects and that kind of thing. What did you think about the gore of the movie? Because you're you're our horror expert on the show. <laughs> I mean, it's a uh, it's it's not terribly bloody. You know, it, it's grotesque and icky, but a lot of the stuff stays on the inside. Oh, I have a, a hole in my stomach. Oh. I have a hole in my stomach. You know, the twisting of Meryl Streep's head and just a hole through the body. I mean, it's not as gross as when you've seen it in, say, like Shaun of the Dead, where you see like the gooping happening. Yeah, you love goop. You're always talking about goop. I love goop. Don't is always like on the goop report. Love good goop uh, in a movie. It's fun. It's a, it's sticky. It's visceral. You know, it's a, it's a thing that can really get a reaction, which I enjoy about that. So they got a little silly with some of the, uh, the gore of it all, but uh, there is a nice precursor, I think, when Meryl Streep's character falls down the stairs and twists her head. She gets up and starts walking towards Bruce Willis's character. It's a, it's a precursor to most likely the inspiration to Malignant. <laughs> yes. Uh, my favorite movie of 2021 by a, a large stretch. But a lot of the, the, the gore, like the effects in this movie aren't practical at all. They are CGI. A lot of CGI. That's always been Zemeckis's thing. Like if you look at his, he's basically like, James Cameron, but if he, like, James Cameron was doing grounded films for the most part. 
It's like the amount of effects that Zemeckis does with even Forrest Gump, tons of special effects. Back to the Future, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit blew everybody away. And they're all kind of, um, he's using effects to like tell the story, but they're not the main attraction. Yeah, they're garnish on top of the steak. Uh, certainly in things like Back to the Future, you know, the effects are great, but it's a story about, as we said, incest <laughs> and buying a Jeep. Which I feel those two things go together. If you own a Jeep, well, you probably want to fuck your mommy. If you own a Jeep Wrangler, you might be in incest. <laughs> Just a lot of movies that maybe didn't need the special effects. Death Becomes Her, the story requires the special effects. Back to the Future, you really could have just had him jump into a porta potty and appear in the 50s. You didn't have to go through the whole rigmarole of the, the car and then the flight of the car at the end and all that stuff. Sure, but let's talk about this, though. Like, the idea that he could have made a smaller version of Death Becomes Her. Sure, with less wacky, like, yeah, you're not hitting people with shovels and stabbing people. Yeah, you don't have to, like, have someone twisting their head around and stuff like that. It, it does add flavor to it, but it's still a fun story. I mean, this isn't in the middle of the time where he's, you know, executive producing one of the best horror series of all time. Tales from the Crypt. I can almost feel that this should have been Tales from the Crypt presents Death Becomes Her, you know? Yeah, maybe there was a, an opportunity to do that that he just didn't take because the two uh, Tales from the Crypt movies, which are, of course, Bordello of Blood and Demon Knight, these come out three and four years after this movie. So there's eventually they do Tales from the Crypt movies, but we just didn't get there at this point. But I agree. This is this feels like an episode of that show. And if you've never seen Tales from the Crypt, the HBO show, you at least probably know the Crypt Keeper who speaks like this and is very annoying, but an iconic figure in horror presenting those episodes. Poor little fellas. And a, a really easy impression to do, as you can tell. <laughs> Going back to Death Becomes Her, if this movie had been more interested in the lore of, of the thing and more interested in diving into the questions that the idea of immortality in Hollywood brings up, it might have been more successful. I love the scene at the end where you are at the party and all of these celebrities are there. Like Elvis is there and Marilyn Monroe and I think- Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. Like that's such a funny idea that could be really mined and exploited more in a remake or a sequel or something like that. Like this feels like the, the greatest pilot to a TV show that didn't happen. I disagree. I, I love, one of my favorite things is sometimes the- you know, you're walking down a hallway, you're on your way to the end of the hallway, but on your way down that hall, you get these glimpses into a cracked door of like a way bigger story. For me, it, it just like builds this idea like, wow, this is huge. But you're still following the small story of these three characters within that world. That's what I like about that. It's like if they had focused on that, I would have been out. It would have been a bunch of terrible impressions. It doesn't matter. You don't care how they have the force. Midichlorians ruin the force. Right. I think I'm more interested in the implications of that in Hollywood. And that's really what is the most interesting part of this movie for me is the idea, not necessarily the details of it, but the idea that celebrity is maintained through this potion that makes you immortal and can cause you to decay in this really gross way if it's not maintained all the time. I do feel this, though. I do feel this, is that it still does say that because who are the people that can afford 
the thing that makes them feel young. Who could who could afford these cosmetic procedures? It's the rich, it's the wealthy. And they're just kind of, they're just making fun of the desperation of these people. And that is what's interesting to me. And I wanted more of that. And this is a very small movie, as you pointed out. It is a movie about these three characters. It is a three-hander. And Isabella Rossellini, as the kind of like really Wonka who it like gives them the potion, is there... But she's not important. It's these three characters. It's Helen, Madeline, and Ernest. And they are the only thing that you really pay attention to. The context of the world outside of that is sort of irrelevant. It's just there to propel us towards whatever the conclusion of the movie is going to be. And an incredible pacing and clip to this movie where they do a good job of just going 13 years later, 70. They're just jumping ahead just to kind of give you this context. And then, then once they get to the book party, it is good to go. And it just goes. Yeah, there's no uh, wasted motion in this movie once they get to that part. I do want to talk about the other performances because we spent so much time on Bruce Willis. Let's talk about Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn had been a huge comedy star for a long time and is almost like the perfect person to be in this movie because she is both one of the most gorgeous women to ever live and incredibly funny and really game to make light of herself. And then you have Meryl Streep, who has done comedies before, but is one of the most respected actors of her generation and kind of plays above Goldie Hawn in a lot of things. Goldie Hawn, Academy Award winner. She'd already won an Academy Award by the time she was in this movie, but was a comedic actress. Meryl Streep, is kind of a weird choice to be in this movie, but she... She kills it, though. She's great. And I think, you know, subsequently, we've seen her in funnier roles, and she's got those chops. You know, watching it with Deanna, where she's like, this is an actress that can do both, and expertly so. I've read a lot of interviews with her about this movie, and she said this was one of the hardest movies she's ever had to do because she had to learn how to work with special effects. Oh, yeah. This was a movie that invented a lot of techniques and it's been said that a lot of the techniques that Industrial Light and Magic created for this movie ended up being refined, honed, and perfected on Jurassic Park, which came out a year later. It's wild. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just a, it's weird when you think about that stuff. It's like these movies that seem so separate in our youth. The idea that you think that any of these movies have anything to do with each other. And then you just kind of look back and kind of go, oh, yeah, it's all connected. It's all the same people. We don't think about the fact that these movies are proving grounds and these are opportunities to test and tinker and fiddle and improve. And all of these craftspeople who work on these movies are then working on the subsequent movies that come out. Like ILM did all of the biggest special effects movies of the era. And Jurassic Park wouldn't have happened without young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> or it wouldn't have happened without Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which was the first use of uh, computer graphics in a movie ever in 1982. Like everything like is is a step in the right direction. Tron was a step in that direction. And, and so I think you can't ever just dismiss these movies because they are human beings like advancing the art form of filmmaking every single time a movie's made. This is an incredibly influential special effects romp, but it's really just a small movie, like I said, about two women who hate each other. The special effects are besides the point. I absolutely agree. The human drama in this movie is more interesting than the giant hole in Goldie Hawn's stomach. But what's underneath that, Jonah? Hmm? Underneath the hole? No, the drama, you fool. The drama. Oh, sorry. Fine. This is a movie about women who are so consumed with the pressure to stay young and beautiful that they give up their souls to compete for a man they don't even like. 
No one likes Ernest, including Ernest. Hey, I like Ernest. He has a beautiful mustache. Yes, it's thick and robust like a mustache should be. But Helen and Madeline aren't really fighting for him. They're fighting each other. And they're only fighting because of the social pressure we put on women, especially women in Hollywood. That's surely something both Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep felt themselves, having been huge stars for a decade by this point. Two decades for Goldie Hawn, because she won her first Oscar for The Cactus Flower in 1970. Exactly. Did you know that Siskel and Ebert gave Death Becomes Her a thumbs down because they said the movie lacked substance? Yeah, maybe for a couple of old men in sweater vests. But Dave, you love sweater vests. I've seen your Amazon wish list. It's the perfect amount of comfort and practicality. You got a problem with that? Ah, oh, God, God, Dave, why, why'd you just stab me with a pitchfork? Yeah, and I do it again. Take back what you said about sweat. Hold on, you should be in horrible pain right now. Did you take immortality serum when I wasn't looking? No, Dave, I'm straight edge, like CM Punk or that monkey who went viral when he broke into the Ikea. All it takes to turn back the hands of time is a healthy vegan diet and some portion control. I've been trying to tell you this for a couple of years now. So eating more broccoli will let me survive a fatal stabbing? Definitely. Here, let me show you. Oh, ah, oh, oh I'm sorry, Dave. I should have let you go on the diet for a while first. <laughs> Next time, but Dave? I'm dying, dude. Please help Dave, me. Dave, uh, <laughs> come on, stop. Stop fooling around, man. Are you okay down there, buddy? Yeah. Dave, should I go fetch your crystals? No, Jonah. Mercury's in retrograde. Oh, God. Call, call a doctor. A good one, too. Steady hands. Nice mustache. I'll call that doctor. I'm going to save you, buddy. But first, I got to throw to this commercial break. When we come back, we got Karina Longworth, everybody. Stick around. No clicking. No clicking. Should I, should I burn some sage? Should I burn some sage, Dave? Yeah, maybe some sage. <laughs> Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. I'm alive thanks to the highly functional American healthcare system. We've yet again spent a half hour mansplaining a movie about women. Kylie, why do you let us keep getting away with this? Well, I just think it's really important to give men more opportunities to fail. Wow, geez, I, uh... Well, I mean, she's not wrong, Dave. Okay, okay, enough. The point is we needed to bring on an expert to pull my head out of my ass for good. That's why we brought on the host of the Hollywood History Podcast, you must remember this, Karina Longworth, to tell us how Death Becomes Her was so successful at poking holes in the misogyny that permeated the classic Hollywood system. Karina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, this is kind of like the perfect movie for us to be talking about with you because you actually wrote a book about Meryl Streep, which uh, I think makes you the expert on this topic. <laughs> well, uh, maybe one of them. <laughs> there are many topics that you're an expert on, which is another reason. Oh, I meant may maybe I'm one of the experts on this, but I... Well, you'll see the rest of them at the convention for Death Becomes Her next year, I'd imagine. This is a, a movie that I think is really kind of a timeless parody of Hollywood in general, even though it has this kind of old Hollywood aesthetic to it. It really is a movie that speaks to problems that we still face in the world and certainly in the business. Do you think this is one of the, the better parodies of Hollywood or are there other ones that you kind of think maybe are more incisive? It's really interesting that you say that because I don't see it as a movie about Hollywood. Um, mm. You know, only one character is in the industry. And I think that a lot of what it's talking about in terms of beauty standards and competition between women and 
and the pressure to look a certain age for your entire life. I think it's it's talking about it in terms that anybody in any industry can understand. Yeah, I, I think the reason why I feel that way is because one, the setting and two, the kind of the way in which the status that these people have is defined by looks. That's certainly, like you said, true of a lot of different industries. But I always equate that most with industries that are are image focused. And, and even being a writer, there's a certain amount of, of image that you have to project. And, you know, even though this is not 100% about Hollywood, there are there's the scene at the end with all of the celebrities who have been taking this serum for decades, if it's James Dean or if it's Jim Morrison, uh, Marilyn Monroe, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where I was thinking about this stuff. But I understand what you're saying. I understand that this is kind of a problem that that is just a human problem. Well, I think that, you know, the fact that the character played by Goldie Hawn, um, you know, is not a, a television writer or a movie writer. She writes books. And I think that what the the movie is saying is that somebody in that position really shouldn't have to have such rigorous beauty standards. But, you know, if, if this movie is a parody of Hollywood, it is so in the sense that what it's saying is that Hollywood convinces us that we all need to look like this and we all need to aspire to this level of perfection. Yeah, well, let's talk about Meryl Streep and her career specifically, because I feel like this is kind of an outlier in some ways in her career and also kind of a peek into what she was going to be doing going forward. Obviously, she'd done comedies before, uh, Defending Your Life being one of my favorite uh, comedies that that she's ever been in or just in general. But what was going on with Meryl's career at this time? And why do you think she picked a movie like this, which was a special effects romp? And she hadn't really done special effects so much at that point in her career. Yeah, this was a a period of transition for Meryl Streep. You know, she had basically become very famous very fast, winning Oscars for two of her very early movies, Sophie's Choice and Kramer versus Kramer. You know, she had been really right away appreciated as this very, very, very serious actress who was only in very serious movies. And during the late 80s, early 90s, she did take this kind of transition where she did a few comedies. She made this and Defending Your Life and also She-Devil. And this movie and She-Devil, I think, have a few things in common. Um, this is, you know, really kind of the classy version of a lot of the things that are being discussed in a much more farcical, much more kind of base and grotesque way in She-Devil. But, you know, I think she was getting to this point where, and this is very relevant to Death Becomes Her, even though her beauty had not been kind of the main thing that made her a star, it was her acting talent that had, she was very aware that you have a shelf life as a Hollywood actress. And as she was around the age of 40, she was kind of interrogating that and trying to figure out how to combat that. And one way she did it was by making a couple of movies that kind of took it head on. But, you know, this is kind of a period of her career where these movies weren't hits. Defending Your Life is something that I think it did okay for kind of an independent film. But in general, she had been part of some of the biggest movies of the 80s. And then she went through this period where she wasn't that big of a star. And there was a question as to whether or not her career would have longevity. So it, it is really interesting that one of the ways in which she kind of had another act in her career as an older woman is through kind of big high concept comedies like things like Mamma Mia and It's Complicated. Well, let's talk about Goldie Hawn because I think you brought up the point that Meryl had been successful very early in her career and was winning Oscars very early in her career. Similar to that is Goldie Hawn, who won the Oscar for Cactus Flower in 1970. She'd already been 
a big star on television because of laughing. So do you think that there was any kind of purposeful decision by Goldie Hawn to be in a movie like this that approaches that question of aging? I do know that she had, I would say, more control over her career than Meryl Streep did because she had a production company. And so she started a production company with Anthea Silbert, who was previously a costume designer and a studio executive. And the whole goal of that was to develop movies for Goldie Hawn to star in. And so that had happened, you know, I... I don't have the dates in front of me, but I want to say at least a decade before Death Becomes Her because the first movie they did was Swing Shift. They did Private Benjamin, Overboard. And so she was really taking control of her career and kind of like planning for longevity and planning to do more than maybe what the industry would offer her. And, you know, Meryl Streep never did that. Meryl Streep's a great actress and puts all of her her energy into the acting. She never became a producer in that sense. Is that the secret or the key to longevity in any creative endeavor is having more control. It certainly seems like it. And it seems like, you know, if you are a big star, especially, you know, a star known for their looks, whether you're a man or a woman, the key is trying to like create your own projects so that people don't start to see you as old news. Is is that really like the, the secret? Is it just having that control? I started only doing things that I control, not necessarily because of career longevity, but just because of ownership. You know, because, you know, maybe somebody on this podcast or maybe somebody listening can relate to this, but I had the experience of writing for these websites that would shudder and then just disappear. Yes, I have. The content would just disappear, you know? And so when it wouldn't disappear, when it would live on, I would get paid $100 or whatever I got paid to write a thing. And then I would have no ownership over the rights to it. So I started trying to really focus my attention on only doing things where I would have the ownership over it. Because then if I'm not happy with the the finished product, like it's just my fault. (laughs) It has nothing to do with (laughs) anybody else. And then if I am happy with the finished product, then that is something valuable that I can kind of carry with me for the rest of my career and my life. Well, how do you see this movie? Because I think it's it's a Rorschach test for a lot of people and they see different things about it because it isn't a message movie. It's not a movie saying, here is the answer to the problem of human nature. Here's the solution. <laughs> it's more about like, here's these grotesque characters and we want to see them kind of fight. Like, what do you think this movie is saying if it's saying anything? And why do you think it's it's stood the test of time, despite not being a huge box office blockbuster, like you said. You know, I go kind of back and forth between opinions about this movie. I think generally it's really something worth watching, especially because of the state of special effects that are on display. It's kind of this transitional moment between practical effects and digital effects. And it's a moment at which I think they kind of dialed in both to work together in a really interesting way. And so... I think it maybe has more appeal than a a movie that's generally about two women (laughs) uh, from this era would have otherwise. But I go back and forth between whether I think it's sort of a feminist movie or a misogynist movie. Oh, interesting. When I watched it most recently, a couple of days ago, I felt myself kind of furrowing my brow a little bit, feeling like what the movie wants you to think is like, you know, these bitches going at each other and like get, get a thrill out of that. Right. Which is ultimately pretty misogynistic, I think. But then sometimes I watch it and I think that it's it's critiquing that. So I think it's available to read both ways. Yeah, I, I certainly have had that reaction watching it in the past where it's like this is these characters are so irredeemable that it's hard to to latch onto them in any sort of emotional way because they're just like 
quote unquote harpies. I mean, I think what I have trouble with is that sometimes when I watch it, I feel like the movie has empathy for them and the situation they've kind of been put in by the culture. And then sometimes I think it's just saying like, these people are horrible and there's, there's got to be a better way to be. And, you know, there probably is a better way to be, but I think I kind of ride more on the side of having empathy for, for the positions that culture puts women into. And, and again, this feeling of like, you're a writer, you shouldn't have to be professionally good looking. Not everybody should have to be professionally good looking, but, and this is something where I think that maybe if this movie does stand the test of time, and if it does feel relevant right now, it's because thanks to Instagram, we have this idea that everybody is supposed to be professionally good looking. And, and my response to that has been to like back away from wanting to be photographed or wanting to be filmed because I don't even want to compete in those, in that arena, you know? Um, but I think for a lot of people, they feel like the answer to it is to, you know, compete as hard as possible. It is kind of a, a thing that I, I feel, yeah, with the with social media and Instagram, especially with being in comedy so long, I do really have a sense of um, just increasingly the comics that were coming in started being a bit better looking. <laughs> you know, it used to just be a bunch of weirdos. And I remember one year being at the Montreal Just for Last Festival and then, you know, seeing like some of these uh, kids like getting, you know, like fresh new faces. And I was like, I was like, so what's the, pre- what's the prerequisite now to get into comedy? Is it being gorgeous? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that certainly I feel like as somebody who writes for a living, I feel like it shouldn't matter what I look like, but Every time somebody interviews you or you have to promote your work in some way, you know, they want to photograph or they want you to do things on camera. And it's a really difficult thing. And it's something, you know, that I feel like I have more of a problem with all the time. And maybe it's because I'm getting older and because I don't have Isabella Rossellini's youth serum. <laughs> it's so exhausting to think about your appearance all the time. And I do, I, I similar to, to both of you, I feel like, God, it's so tiring. But I also am putting myself out there and I've, kind of convinced myself I have to do this and nobody told me I had to I kind of just felt the pressure of like okay if I'm going to be successful in media and entertainment I have to be a public figure and I have to show my face all the time and take pictures of myself and be more vain and that is exhausting a lot of people since I've like you know recently lost weight they ask I goes like oh like what'd you do what made you do it and stuff like that and I told him, I was like, I was like, well, one of my closest friends literally became a Marvel superhero and it feels weird being next to him now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we go on a walk and I get tired. <laughs> you know, like I, I knew Kamel before he transformed his body. Yeah. And it's, it is really interesting to like see, have him sort of speak in the media about that whole process. It's, it really is interesting how just getting one job can kind of change your whole relationship to the way you look. Yeah, that's wild. He said, you know, multiple times it wasn't easy to get that response from people. You would think, oh, changing your appearance and and being in better shape will make you feel better about yourself. And he said before, like, oh, it didn't always make me feel good. And that's that's scary. Like if if you'd make this kind of what we think of as a positive change in your life. And people are like, why did you do that? Jonah Hill has talked about it too, about his his body image issues and feeling kind of weird about putting himself out there and losing weight and, and all of that stuff. Like it's, there's no answer to the problem of what to do with your body. Your body is just like this husk that you have to lug around life until you're gone. And it's never going to be perfect. It's almost the idea of what happens in the movie. It's like, 
take care of your body. You'll have all this stuff, but just make sure you, you, you don't hurt it. Don't hurt your body. That's That should be the only thing that really matters. I mean, there's something really interesting about that scene that you mentioned of the party that Isabella Rossellini throws for her clients. And you see Elvis there and James Dean there. And, and it's these celebrities who have like taken this incredible sacrifice in order to be frozen in time, but they can't continue doing the thing that made people idolize them. They have to hide. You know, that's one of her rules is that they have to escape from the public eye and they can only come out once a year at this party. I mean, that's real deal with the devil shit. You know, it's like, what's more important to you? Like looking a certain way or or continuing to live the life you've been living? Yeah. And just to that too, I know that they wanted the most recognizable version of Elvis, but there's no way that that was Elvis's peak physical condition is the age he was right when he died. Right. And it also doesn't make any sense because like when Meryl Streep takes the potion, she doesn't stay frozen in time at like 50 years old or however old she's supposed to be when she takes it. Like she immediately like shrinks back into looking 28. So if he had taken it, he would have looked like, you know, army Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Jim Morrison, who died pretty uh, out of shape, he look the same. So I don't know. Maybe I'm starting to poke holes in this thing that shouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know if Death That Comes Her was designed for this kind of scrutiny. Yeah, well, <laughs> we were talking about this earlier in the episode. The idea that these characters kind of show up and it's this like a kind of a one-off joke. And I'm always fascinated by that part. The rules and, and the arcane sort of ritual of this world is what sparks my creative brain Whereas for Jonah, it's like, I don't care. That's just like a fun window dressing thing. I mean, it's it's like it's world building. It's uh, that stuff. I love that stuff. Like, it's like when we are writing riffs for Mystery Science Theater, and this is a very small version of this, but like when you add like an interaction between two characters in the movie with a line between them, that like is just a hint into a larger relationship that these two random people in the movie might have. That's the kind of stuff I love that just that that little corner of your eye world world building stuff. Yeah. I just want to dig into it more. And I feel like because they didn't answer those questions that you're, you're bringing up, Jonah, it was clear that I was just like, well, would it be funny if like all these celebrities were there? Let's talk about the end of the movie because this is an interesting question, what the ending of this movie is going to be. Because there is an original ending where Bruce Willis's character goes off with... Tracy Ullman, who's a bartender, and they have a happy life. And then there is the ending that we got in the theater, which is that he dies 37 years later. They go to his funeral, and they just kind of are like these bickering characters who just live this life of decay together and have no friends, presumably, and, and they're just miserable. Would you have liked this movie better if it had a happy ending, or do you think this was the right choice? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that you come to this movie looking for Bruce Willis's character to have a happy ending. So, and in, in a way he does anyway, because he gets away from these two women. But, you know, I think for the sort of terms that the movie sets of what it's about, the ultimate punishment for both of these women is that they have to live together in eternity. And so the, I think the movie ultimately thinks that we're going to be excited to see them get punished. And that that's, again, is like why it's hard for me to, like 100% embrace it as a satire to sort of good feminist ends. Because I do think it takes too much pleasure out of seeing them punished. But yeah, I, I do think it's a better ending for the movie than the one that involved Tracy Ullman, even though I love Tracy Ullman. They both feel like happy endings for, you know, Bruce Wilson's character. Um, you just kind of don't get the you don't get to see the process of him having a happy life. Who knows if that didn't already happen, you know, that he didn't meet up with Tracy Ullman and that's, you know, who's throwing the funeral. 
I do like it because it's it is always nice when those side characters in a Tales from the Crypt like have a happy ending and then the <laughs> people you've been following the whole time don't. It's like that's like I said before, that's how I look at this movie as like just a great, fun Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah, it has that uh, morality play element to it, which we talked about before. It's and that's why I think, Karina, your your analysis of this movie is probably pretty spot on, is that it is it's so caustic in the way that those Tales from the Crypt episodes were and so kind of cynical. There's not really empowerment there. Like these are characters that are trapped, but they're, they're never given the tools to escape their fate. Yeah. And I also think that I almost wish that it was more of a, a direct parody of Hollywood and how Hollywood creates these standards of beauty and enforces them. Like maybe that's in the ether of the movie, but it's not something we see. And so you don't really get the sense that they're able to like, first of all, they don't try to fight these standards. They, try, you know, literally give up their lives to conform to them. But a different movie, and maybe if this was made today as like a miniseries or whatever, it would be interesting to see them try to fight that system. Yeah, I guess my last question for you is, do you think that things have gotten better since the making of this movie or the era in which the movie is set? Well, I think that there are different kinds of beauty that are sort of in the mainstream. Certainly our standards of beauty are less white than they were in 1990, you know, in the late 20th century. Um, certainly there are a few more body types that are considered beautiful or sexy. But I think that this problem that I was talking about earlier in terms of the way Instagram projects a version of the world has actually made a lot of things worse because now there's no sense of reality <laughs> that you can kind of go back to. It's everything feels very manipulated and artificial. And, you know, in terms of this movie, I just don't think we see any kind of aging process in popular culture or in visual media at all anymore. You know, like we see people who, we see somebody like Meryl Streep now, we see Helen Mirren, like those are, that's kind of the last generation that we've actually seen age to get to that point. When you think about somebody like Jennifer Aniston, you know, she's just sort of frozen in time at 32. And I think that the expectation is that basically like you're not supposed to ever look different than you did when you first became famous. I can't, I can't imagine looking like I did when I was 32. That is long gone. I will never look like that again. And that's okay. Like listeners, please don't worry about getting older. Being old is fun. I love being old. <laughs> it's great. There's nothing better than being a parent and being old and wearing sweatpants and all of those things where you just don't care anymore. It's nice. And you know what else was nice? Karina Longworth coming on this show. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to plug? I know you've got a lot of stuff happening that you probably want people to enjoy. I do a podcast called You Must Remember This. And right now we have a season that we're doing new episodes of called Sammy and Dino about Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. And oh, kind rad. Of looking at them through the lens of, of race and this idea of like the rat pack as kind of the last gasp of middle-aged man cool mm -hmm. and kind of talking about how that worked in the 60s and why it worked in the 60s and how it was related to this kind of hangover from World War II and why it really doesn't work today. That sounds awesome. That's awesome. I, I can't wait to listen to that. That's so great. One of the best podcasts around. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Nobody does more research, as far as I can tell, on this particular subject. Thank you again so much, and I hope that you can come on the show again soon. Thanks for having me. That was great. Thanks so much for coming on. Each week, we wrap up the show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here's Nathan from Columbus, Ohio, now. 
Hey, this is Nathan from Columbus, Ohio, and my Galaxy Green Cake is actually inspired in the Seinfeld episode you guys did. And it's about how, you know, if you think about the subgenre of television and film, where all of the characters kind of talk alike, some of the top three contenders are Tarantino movies, Seinfeld, and the Gilmore Girls, and the Gilmore Girls is by far the best out of all of them. So the Tarantino movies, to me, always struck me as like, this kid, it kind of sounds like Tarantino as a child playing make-believe games where he's imagining himself in different historical environments. And so, like, all the characters are just kind of him talking to himself through these, like, big historical moments. And then Seinfeld, as, as you guys talked about, you know, at best is, like, very kind of crazy and projecting himself onto all these other characters. At worst, it's just a bunch of, like, goops in New York who who try to sound quirky and maybe aren't really that interesting. And The Gilmore Girls, I think, is just overall the best out of all of these shows. It has the most well-rounded characters. And one of the reasons it has the most well-rounded characters is actually, I think, the, the way that the characters sound alike. Because you have this woman who ran away from her rich and fancy life at 16 to raise a child by herself when she had nothing. And then her daughter, who obviously she became very close with because they were going through the thing together. So the way that they sort of trip over themselves and sound the same and look to each other and talk too fast is really just indicative of this weird trauma bond that they have kind of and is one of those little details that make the show so brilliant. Thanks so much for the show, guys. It's really fun. Thanks. Thank you, Nathan. That's a great take. Nathan, that was great. I'll feel you with the um, the Tarantino thing for me. It's a, yeah, he, he is a kid. I think he's kind of playing with his toys and he gets into a sandbox and he has, you know, he has his Western toys for Hateful Eight. He has his Nazi toys like all kids had uh, for um, <laughs> Inglorious Bastards. But yeah, I think that's kind of, uh, for him, It's his movies, they all talk alike because he he loves those movies. It's like where everyone's on the same page and, uh, you know, like noir movies. Everyone talks like with, in slang in noir movies. And Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a couple of things I want to bring up about this. One is the auteur theory, which I think is bullshit. There are so many instances in filmed entertainment where the writer is the most important person in terms of what the product is going to be. And what you brought up, Nathan, is multiple examples of the writing being maybe the most important part of the soup. The soup is still a bunch of different parts and the set designers and the costumers and the composer and the director and the producers are all coming together to make a soup. But in these cases, the writer, they're all coming together in, in their separate things to make this something that's really their own vision because these characters do talk alike. And I think that's the dream scenario for a writer as a writer myself. I think about, oh, I love dialogue. I love the spoken word and all this stuff. But every single time someone reads a script, they're like, oh, everybody sounds the same. That's not good. You got to change that. They got to all sound different. Be different. And I was like, well, no. Look at, look at all these examples of these characters that all kind of speak the same. That is the writer being the most important, the preeminent voice in the art. And I am always attracted to that. And I think that's what's beautiful about it. And that is why I like all those three things that you brought up, including Gilmore Girls, which you seem to be the biggest fan of. And I love Gilmore Girls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gilmore Girls is great. If you want to be like Nathan and you want to give us a Galaxy Brain take, we would love for you to call in about next week's episode topic, Season 3 of HBO Succession. Our number is 213-570-8069 and it's also listed in our show notes. 
Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. Just please make it weird. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we're covering HBO's Laugh-A-Minute romp about the disease eating away at our society. Tales from the Crypt? No, Succession. Yes, but what if the Crypt Keeper played Logan Roy instead of Brian Cox? Save it for one of your three impressions, Dave. All right, read the credits. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashen. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Frushnick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnazic, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. We're going full fucking beast. <laughs> <laughs>